Very thankful for each and every one of you. We need to have weddings around here more often, involving people from Wheeler and Harlingen, apparently. Uh, it's great to see you all here, and I hope you've enjoyed the services as much as I have so far, and I pray that I will uh, continue to uplift and edify with the words I had to say. I told Brother Jonathan Murphy yesterday that I, he was going to get part 12 in a 12-part series this morning, and uh, don't worry about that. These are very self-contained sermons that we've done. I've gone through the book of Ephesians over the last year or so, and I'm finishing up that series today talking about walking in the power of his might. And so Paul is concluding this letter with a sober warning for us as Christians, namely, and that we are in a battle for our soul. And the strength we receive for that battle comes not from ourselves, but it comes from God. And these thoughts are sort of a final reminder of Paul to the Ephesians of the power that we have from God that's based in his work that he performed in Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus on the cross, raising him from the dead, exalting him to his right hand. And Paul wants us to arm ourselves with the knowledge that he's given us in the book of Ephesians. And we've talked about the book of Ephesians for over the last year and how it's basically divided into two. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with rich theology and concept of of the gospel and what God has done for us. And verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we talked about how in that first chapter, the first 14 verses, Paul lays out a very beautiful, but brief, but thorough explanation of the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ and the role that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit play in those blessings. And in the second part of that chapter, he talks about he prays a prayer of enlightenment for the church at Ephesus, that they would come to understand, not just to know the facts and to hear the words, but to really take in the truth of the gospel into their lives. There are certain things he wants them to know, and he wants them to know that those facts are based in a power that God has given us through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 2, he talks about us being spiritually dead people who are walking in disobedience, walking according to the course of this world, and how that God has made us alive through Jesus Christ, and he's raised us up with him. And later on in that chapter about how we come together as the family of God, that it's not just an individual thing, but God has brought Jew and Gentile together into the church, which is his household, and how we walk this walk together. Chapter 3, he talks about the mystery that he's a steward of, which is the fact that the Gentiles are partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ, and that how they're members of the household of God. And he talks about his own personal ministry and his stewardship of the gospel and brings comfort to them regarding his own imprisonment and to, to, to tell them it's all part of the plan. That plan, God's eternal purpose that we read about in chapter 3, part of that was to show to the, the spiritual forces of wickedness in this universe God's manifold wisdom, that, that they were foolish in their rebellion against God, and the wisdom of God takes a people who are dead in sin and makes them alive in Jesus Christ. And finally, he concludes with another prayer that they would be strengthened in the knowledge of God, and he ends with that beautiful doxology, now to him who is able to do far above what we can ask or imagine. Now he pivots in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, a prisoner, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he's talking about the Christian response to what God has done for us, our faithful response to the truths that we've learned and how we're to walk worthy. We talked about that worthy walk, how that's our way of life, how we live in this world with one another. We talked about walking in unity in chapter 4, how that we don't do this in solidarity, 
that God designed the church to be a family and we come together and serve Him together as God's family. And that we walk with a new mind, not as the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their minds, but we change our mindset, we change what we think about, we change what's important to us, which changes our hearts, which changes the way we live. And that means that we walk in love and we walk in light. We draw close to God, we imitate God in our lives, we flee immorality, and we live our lives in imitation of his righteousness. And so as we, you may notice we've left out some of chapter 5 and part of chapter 6 here that deals with the family. Uh, Back in March, Brother Noah Hall gave us a really good lesson on the new family that's very, very, very closely related to what Paul talks about in Ephesians. In all honesty, I started looking at that and thought, I'm just going to say the same thing that Noah said when he talked about the family in Colossians. So I highly recommend, if you didn't hear that sermon Go to our podcast back in March. Listen to Noah's sermon on the family. We're going to skip now down to verse number 10 in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says, finally, there's probably people in this room here saying, finally, we're done with Ephesians. But Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Let's talk about Christian warfare. Paul's concluding his discourse on the worthy walk of the Christian by using the imagery of warfare. And besides the obvious things we're going to talk about this morning, there are some implications here that we need to consider, namely that this is a war, that this is a battle. It's a war for our souls. Now, blessedly, the outcome of that war is not dependent upon my own worthiness, your own worthiness, our own abilities, our own talents. It's dependent upon God and the strength that we find in him. He says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. I've mentioned all throughout this series that Paul uses this phrase, in the Lord. And I did a count as I was preparing this final sermon. I think about 33 times in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, in the Lord, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in the beloved, so on and so on and so on. Because it's so important, because all this is dependent upon us being in the Lord. And he's doubling down on that. He basically says it twice in one verse here, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It comes not from our own prowess and our own ability. This war that we're fighting, this battle that we're engaged in, thank God it's not dependent upon my own abilities. It's dependent upon Him. And that's why Paul has said all throughout this book, you be in Christ. In Him is where it happens. In Him is where it's important to be. And remember, he's building on theology that he's already talked about in this book, Ephesians 1.19 What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ? This is where it happens as Paul lists out the blessings in chapter 1 and he goes into this prayer of what he wants them to know and he says these things, you have these things because they're based in the immeasurable greatness of power that God has given us. It's not because of what we've done or what what we've learned to do. It's based in the fact that God has an immeasurable amount of power. You can't measure it. You can't define it. 
And he's granted that towards us. And it's all based in the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and set him above all principalities and powers and gave him all authority. Arm yourselves with this knowledge, brothers and sisters. Being in the Lord is where the strength is. If you're not in the Lord, you're not where the strength is. It's that simple. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are the weapons of our warfare? Well, they're not for the flesh. They're not of the flesh. They're divine in power. That means the power comes from God. And we can tap into that power, and we can arm ourselves with that power, and not have to rely on ourselves when it comes to Christian warfare. Notice what he says here in verse 11 and verse 13. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. Not take up some of the armor of God. Not take up most of the armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. Having done all to stand firm, he says there at the bottom. It's important, you know, this word that's translated whole armor, it's actually one Greek word, panoplia, and you may recognize that from the song we sing sometimes called Soldiers of Christ Arise. In that song, there's a line that says, but take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. How many of us have sung that song for years and years and don't even know what panoply means? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means a full set of armor. Circa 23, 24 years ago, there were a young group of Christians uh, meeting together at the Church of Christ on Carolina Street here in Amarillo. Somebody thought it'd be a good idea to go rollerblading. And so we got people that are just out of college or still in college. I was one of those people. Becca was there. We weren't even dating yet. Uh, Larry was there. Clint Goodman, who's with us today, was one of those. His sister, Kelly. So I got the invite. Hey, you want to go rollerblading at Meta Park, the safest park in Amarillo to rollerblade at? <laughs> all those hills and all the water hazards, right? I said, okay, sounds like fun. So I had disposable income. I went to Walmart and bought top-of-the-line rollerblades. And I'm, I'm looking there at the rollerblades and thought, right next there in the rack is, there's helmets, there's knee pads, there's elbow pads. And I thought, you know, I haven't done this in years. In fact, I haven't ro roller skated in years. I don't know if I've ever done rollerblades. At some point, I'm going to go down. And so I bought all the pads. I, I bought everything. I show up to Meta Park. I get out of my car. I strap on my armor. My friends, <laughs> my brothers and sisters, my future wife, my future brother-in-law, a future evangelist in the Church of Christ, they laugh at me. They're like, what are you wearing? I'm like, guys, I don't like road rash. I'm going to go down at some point here. I want the whole armor of rollerblading. When we put on the armor of God, we need the whole armor. God hasn't done all he's done just to give us some help. He's given us all the help we need. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is the armor of God if not spiritual blessings that God has given us? Use every one of them. Don't cherry pick. Don't think you can get by with just some of them because they all come together. It's like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a singular thing. It's multiple categories, but it's a singular thing. You can't have one of those fruits of the Spirit without the other. And the same is true with the armor of God. Take the whole armor of God into battle. Why the armor of God? Why spiritual armor? Because it's a spiritual battle. It's spiritual warfare. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
It's in the heavenly places where those spiritual forces of evil are that the battle is fought. And we can look at the political landscape of our nation and the world and we see evil and corruption and we think that's where the battle is. That's just a reflection of what's going on in the spiritual realm. He says it over and over in the book of Ephesians. Verse 1-3, He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly places. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That through the, the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is where the battle happens. In the spiritual realm, that's why we need spiritual armor. I don't have that. I don't have spiritual armor. I don't even have physical armor. My friends laughed at me when I put it on. Spiritual armor is what we need because it's a spiritual battle. Satan is the enemy. Now, what you have to decide is, are you going to be on the winning side? Because here's the thing about this. This is a war. But it's a war that's already been won. The outcome of the final victory, cosmically, that we just talked about, it's not in doubt because it's already been done. It's already won. Jesus fought the battle at the cross. God raised him from the dead, exalted him to his right hand, and the victory is won. Will you be on the winning side? That's what our battle is. Do we choose to fight and put on the armor of God and be on the winning side, or do we choose to walk away? In Ephesians 3.11, he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The battle's been won already. He's already realized it. The eternal purpose of redeeming us for our sins, bringing us together into the family of God, and making us as a, as a demonstration, the church is a demonstration of God's wisdom to these spiritual forces. It's already been realized in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you skip down to verse 55 here, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a winning side. And all you have to do is decide to be a part of it. You know, as I consider our congregation here in Amarillo, I just mentioned that it's, my experience there is at least 23, 24 years old, but just think the last 10 years. We've been in this building here on Western Street now for 10 years or a little more. And as I think about the people that are in this room now, we've, we've grown so much. So many of you have joined us since we came to this building. There are people that were in this building 10 years ago that aren't here today. And those people aren't here because they moved away. That happens. Sometimes, very fortunately, they move back. Those people aren't here today because they've passed away and gone on to be with Jesus. That's happened too. Those aren't the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who got out of the fight. People who made the choice to walk away and not stay in the fight. They're casualties of war, and I pray to God that those people someday will come back and join the fight. But know that this is a war, and we need to pick the winning side. Ephesians 6 and 14, stand, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's talk about the armor of God. We've heard a lot of sermons preached on this passage over the years, and I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail on the specific pieces of armor, and he's using the Roman soldier as as the example for this, and what his armor meant for him and how it worked, and there's validity in doing that. We had a sermon not too long ago about this, actually, so I don't want to rehash a lot of that, but what I want to hone in on this morning is the, the spiritual nature of the armor, the different aspects, because when it boils down to it, they're all just pieces of armor that come together to protect us, and it comes together as a whole, not as individual pieces. First of all, having fastened on the belt of truth, you know, this was the first thing that Paul prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1 when he prayed that they would have knowledge. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his... This is, Paul says, I want you to know this. Not just hear me, don't just hear me, but know it. Take it into yourselves. I want you to know and have your eyes enlightened the fact that God has done these things. You've got a hope that you've been called to. You've got a hope of eternal life. You have value to God. He considers you his glorious inheritance. And there is an immeasurable greatness of power that God... I want you to know that. The truth of that. Yes, the truth is the word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Of course we're talking about the Bible when we're talking about this. But it's not just knowing the Bible. It's not just reading and studying the Bible and being able to answer questions and being able to win arguments. It's about knowing this right in here and letting that affect or arming ourselves with that knowledge, with the knowledge of the truth and taking that into battle with us. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Why did God even do all this? What was the point of his plan, his eternal purpose? He says in Ephesians 1 and 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's righteousness, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God did this whole thing so that he could redeem us to himself, that he could bring us into his family and make us a righteous people. And of course, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that does that. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Of course, it's the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God sees when he looks at us. But he doesn't expect us just to keep living the way we want and hope that the righteousness of Christ will cover us. He says in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the image, excuse me, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is why God did what he did. So that he could take a people dead in sin and in their trespasses, raise them up and exalt them with Christ, and that they would be created for good works in righteousness and holiness. And that is a piece of armor we've got to take into battle. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This, this little phrase used to confuse me a lot when I studied the armor of God because it seems a little, I don't know if overcomplicated is the word, but I always had a hard time reconciling. How does this work? Shoes that, that are the readiness of the gospel, how does that work? But, you know, the gospel is so prevalent in the book of Ephesians. Paul is trying to get us to have a gospel-centered mindset. 
when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to walking and being engaged in this battle. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, "...and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." When he says reconcile us both to God, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. Paul, as a Jew, is writing to Gentiles, and he said that Jesus has reconciled us. He did what he did so that he could reconcile us both to God, both Jew and Gentile. And he did so in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he killed the hostility between God and man. He says, verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. How did he do this? How did Jesus make peace between God and man and between Jew and Gentile? Did it through the cross, through the gospel. The gospel of peace. The book of Ephesians is just one gigantic gospel sermon. The fact the New Testament, the entire Bible is one gigantic gospel sermon. Because all of human history looks forward to and looks back to the cross. It is the epicenter of our faith. It's the epicenter of everything that's happened in the created universe. Because without the gospel, nothing matters. Without the death of Jesus, without his burial, without his resurrection and exaltation, none of it matters. And so when Paul says, I want you to... To, have, to be ready to go into battle, and to do so, you be armed with this knowledge about the gospel. That it was the gospel that saves you. It's the gospel that continues to save you going forward. It's the gospel that you take to the lost to save them. It's the gospel that you use to come together as the family of God. It's the gospel that you use to, to proclaim to those spiritual forces of wickedness that God has manifold wisdom, and they're foolish. It's all about the gospel. In all circumstances, again, not just some of the circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. How important is our faith? You know, somebody, we can look at this list and say, you know what, faith, faith is really the only thing I contribute when it comes to the armor of God. And I will grant that to a certain degree. Because faith is basically our part of the equation, isn't it? It's our response to what God has done for us. We believe it and act on it. That's, that's faith in a nutshell. And so we can say, well, faith is, is our only contribution to the, to the armor of God, but that contribution may not be as big as you think it is. In fact, it's probably not. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, listen to what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we are saved by God's grace through faith. So do I contribute to my salvation in any way? There are a lot of people in this world that say, no, you do not in any way contribute to your own salvation. This verse is directly opposed to that idea because it is God's grace that saves me. And I don't deserve it. It's not my own doing. It's the gift of God, but it's done through faith, which means I have to believe in God and respond to that belief. That's faith. But really, when it comes down to it, the faith is in what? It's in what God's done. And what he accomplished through Christ. It's not in myself. I don't have faith in myself for anything. I have faith and trust in God. He says in Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can approach the throne of God boldly and in confidence. Why can we do that? It's through our faith, but it's through our faith in him, in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How does Jesus dwell in our hearts? Through faith. When we put our faith and our trust in him. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth all through faith. So do we contribute to the armor of God? Yes, but only in the sense that we're having faith and trust in what God has done for us. Not that I have done anything whatsoever to merit my salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 5, excuse me, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you overcome the world? How do you gain victory? How do you choose the winning side? Just have faith in Jesus Christ. Follow his word. Do what he says. That's how you overcome the world. That's how you gain salvation. He says, take the helmet of salvation. You know, my friends at the rollerblading park were at least smart enough to wear helmets. I'll give them that. They all, they all had helmets, at least. I guess the helmet's a pretty important part of the, our set of armor. Protects what little intelligence we do have, I suppose. Again, this is why God did what he did. It's why he chose us before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our brother Trevor Teal has been preaching from the book of 1 John, talking a lot about our, the confidence and assurance in our salvation, how important that is to us. We don't want to be Christians who are uncertain about our eternal future. We want to be people who are energized and excited and, and zealous to do the work of God because we have confidence in the salvation that we've been given. And what he's saying here is you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel, and that gospel is what saved you. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare unto you the gospel in which you stand, by which you are being saved. And when we understand that, when we understand that we can have confidence in our salvation, John says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a really powerful piece of armor. That's a really powerful truth for us to take into battle and understand and realize I've been saved. And I haven't been saved because I deserve it. I've been saved because of God's grace. And now I can take that salvation to other people. And I can go up against what Satan throws at me because I know that I'm saved. And I have confidence in that salvation. He says in Ephesians 2.4, but God, before I read this, after studying the book of Ephesians for so long, I've grown to love the book of Ephesians so much more than I ever did. And if you had to pin me down and ask me what, what's my favorite part of Ephesians, pardon me, want to say the whole thing. <laughs> but if you had to really pin me down and say, give me one short passage, I'd have a hard time with this not being at the top of the list. So consider that as we read this. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Jesus Christ. There is power in this passage of Scripture, brothers and sisters. There's armor. There's strength. Because God can take a wretched sinner like me who was dead 
in my trespasses. And he can raise me up with Jesus Christ. And he can see the righteousness of Christ instead of my own unworthiness. Because he, was, because he loved me. Because he had mercy toward me. Because he had grace towards me. Take that into battle with you. Understand and realize that you have been saved. And that acts as a helmet as you go into battle. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think every single sermon I've ever heard preached on this passage, the preacher said, this is the only weapon that we have when it comes to spiritual warfare. And I guess I will grant that to a degree. It, it is true. It's the only weapon that's listed here. I suppose a soldier could take off his helmet and smack somebody with it if he wanted to, but it's the only part of this that's designed to be a weapon. But you know, a sword can be used to strike a blow, but it can also be used to block a blow. It can be used offensively and defensively. And it takes a soldier who is wise and discerning, proficient, has had training in such a weapon to know which course of action to take. Do I use this defensively? Do I use this offensively? You know, Paul talks about the Word of God in Ephesians 5, 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Yes, the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. And yes, we can use it as a weapon. But are we trained in it? Are we proficient? Are we wise and discerning when it comes to the use of this weapon? You know, if, you, if someone were to walk up to me and give me a sword and say, defend yourself, I'm probably going to throw the sword down and run. That's how I'm, because I don't know how to use a sword. I'm going to pull that thing out and start waving it around. I'm going to cut my arm off. I'm going to cut somebody else's arm off who I, I don't intend to. I don't know what to do with a sword. And brothers and sisters, we got to know what to do with the Word of God. We got to be able to use it proficiently and be wise in that. And all too often, we want to take this book and say, I'm going to the lost, and we want to smack them upside the head with it. Say, listen to what I know about the Word of God. Listen to what you're doing wrong. How did Jesus use the Word of God as a weapon? He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As Jesus faced temptation by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, this is how he replied. It is written. Verse 7. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Who was Jesus using the word of God as a weapon against? It was Satan. By all means, take up the sword and use the word of God against Satan as a weapon. I would argue this is still defensive here. This is Jesus defending himself, resisting temptation. Beyond Satan, that's the enemy. Let's not forget. Let's remember this is a spiritual war. And the people we're trying to take the gospel to, the lost, they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Do not use this as a weapon against those you're trying to save. Use it to comfort. Use it to teach. Use it to love. Use it to bring into the family of God. You want to be proficient in the use of the Word of God, you got to get in it. 
and you got to use it, and you got to practice, and you got to train. Take it into battle. Finally, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. You know, I bet Paul had calluses on his knees, all the praying he did. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Ephesians chapter 3, 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Every single letter you read that Paul wrote in the New Testament, I thank God for you. I give thanks to God for you. I pray for you always. I remember you always in my prayers. And he tells them, please pray for me. Please pray for the saints. Prayer was such a huge part of Paul's ministry. I feel that too often we neglect this powerful piece of armor. He doesn't list this as one of the pieces of armor, but it is. We need to take prayer into battle. And yes, pray for ourselves, but pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. I got to tell you that it's, it's a really good feeling to know when people are praying for me. Many times in our public assemblies, the, the men that pray at the podium will pray for Carrie and me as elders of this congregation. And I don't need to have my name announced. I don't care about having recognition as an elder for this church, but I really appreciate knowing that people pray for me. And I hope that you appreciate that people pray for you as well. And know that as the elders of this congregation, carry and I pray for each one of you and your engagement in the war, the Christian warfare that we face. Prayer was an enormous part of Paul's ministry. Take that into battle with you. I want to close with the words that Paul closes out the book of Ephesians with here. They just seem very fitting, thinking about everything that we've talked about today and in this series. He says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I pray this blessing upon each one here this morning. I hope that you will love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible because when we do that, when we love Christ when we embrace the truth of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, and we love that, that's going to bring about that new creation that Christ died for. That's going to bring about the change. It's going to bring about the love among the brethren. And it's going to cause us to want to get in the fight and take the armor of God and be strong in the strength or the power of his might. I mentioned earlier that there were people here 10 years ago that aren't here today. Casualties of war. Statistically, this is purely statistically, there's somebody sitting in this room today that 10 years from now won't be here. I don't have my eye on anyone, don't have any names in in my head right now, thinking they better step it up. I'm just saying statistically, those of you from other congregations, think about the last 10 years of your congregation. And statistically, there's somebody in this room today who won't be here in 10 years. Don't be that person. Stay in the fight. If you've never joined the fight, if you've never been obedient to the gospel, if you've never obeyed our Lord in baptism and come into contact with his cleansing blood, why are you waiting? Get in the fight today. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Make the gospel the center of your life. If you want to do that, if you need the prayers of this church, have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.